The sermon text for today is from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and ask that this word would make us alive. Father, we are not worthy. We are not worthy to come before your throne and hear your word proclaimed. I am not worthy to let your words pass from my lips. And yet, you have declared that your word will go forth. By the power of your spirit, we will be made alive. Your word will not return void. That by your word, you are transforming us, renewing our minds, making us into a new creation, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. So I pray, God, that you would help us behold the glory of King Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, of whom we are the foremost. Amen. When life gives you lemons, I'm told you're supposed to make lemonade. Or if God closes a door, some say that he opens a window. There's an old story about two sons whose father was an alcoholic. And when they grew up, one of them himself also became an alcoholic. And he said, how could I do otherwise? Look at my father. The other became quite successful, never, ever touching a drop of alcohol, saying, how could I touch that stuff? Look what it did to my father. And so we learn from these that it's not your circumstances that define your future, but how you respond to them. These are some somewhat encouraging cultural proverbs that are meant to inspire positive action in the face of difficulty instead of this negative retreat and defeatist mindset. There is truth in them that's quite motivating. They empower a person who's facing difficulty to say, you have the ability to make a change, to do something about it. But there's also something really important missing from these Proverbs. Sometimes the lemons or the door in your face or the alcoholic father or whatever it is that's 
ailing you are so debilitating that sometimes you can't escape them. The theology behind these proverbs is that you in yourself have the strength to overcome. And God just stands aloof looking down saying, hey, pull up, put your boots on, pull up your pants and do better. These ideas fail to acknowledge the utter depravity of mankind and fail to see that God is sovereign in every single detail. Because sometimes God shuts the door in your face to sit you down and reevaluate your priorities. To show you that you have been striving against him. Sometimes he gives you a lemon. So you taste the sour, bitter fruit of this world and die to pursuing its pleasures. Sometimes God puts something in your life so impossible to overcome. To show you that only in his power can you ever be rescued. So today I want to give you that same kind of positive, affirming encouragement, but from a much better foundation and with much greater promises. From the book of Luke today, I want you to see that Jesus seeks the humble to make into his kingdom citizens. Now, even though Luke is repeating much of the same story as Matthew and Mark, which we've heard the last couple of weeks, Luke is actually giving us a really fresh perspective on the same story that's been just so motivating to me this week. When you first, when you read these first three gospels together, you think, oh, it's all the same stuff. I've read this before. It's not so much though what's the same that matters, but what's different, what's unique about each one that we want to understand. Each author focuses on a slightly different aspect of Jesus' life and his ministry to grow you deeper into the story. To give you a four-dimensional view of our Savior. So Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is the Jewish king that the Old Testament prophets foretold. Mark highlights this humble, simple, but purposeful servanthood of Christ. That sparked a movement of servants. And then Luke comes on a little bit later to give this very detailed account describing how this group of outsiders, outcasts, began to permeate and influence the entire Roman Empire. How in the world could that happen? So Luke wants to show all the elites, the influencers, the powerful people of the world that Jesus seeks the humble to make citizens of his new kingdom. Luke writes to a noble Roman to show him that this movement all started by a Jewish Messiah who came to rescue the outcast, the broken, the humble, the dregs of society. And he's making them his authorized representatives of his heavenly kingdom. It's both an encouragement to the weak To persevere in the power and the promises of Christ. But also a warning to the strong that God opposes the proud. So today I want to fly through this long book. The longest book in the New Testament. In three parts. If you want more detail of this book, you should be coming to Sunday school. Where we've been walking chapter by chapter through this book. But today... 
just a big overview. The first third of this book, about chapters 1 through 9, highlights the unique nature of the kingdom citizens. Jesus builds his kingdom out of the people that the world rejects. But more than that, the second part of the book, in chapters 9 to 18, he shows us that these people that he makes into kingdom citizens, he also calls and empowers to work on his kingdom mission. The kingdom isn't of this world. The world can't see it. And we are called to make it visible and recruit others to join in its promised future. Then finally, in chapters 19 to 24, after facing many obstacles, Jesus obtains the ultimate victory on behalf of his citizens in his kingdom conquest. So after that long introduction, let's dive into a few texts First, focusing on the kingdom citizens. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Luke, turn to chapter 4. And we're going to look first at chapter verses 16 to 19 of chapter 4. Luke writes here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in this scene, Jesus is kicking off his ministry with a quote from Isaiah 61. He says, me, I am the guy who's fulfilling this text. And this text is full of Jewish themes, promises for the people of Israel who are stuck in exile. And he gives them hope with God's love and God's sovereignty for over the poor, working on behalf of the poor. But the word poor doesn't just mean financially poor, but the word specifically means afflicted, oppressed, sick, beaten down. It's for those who feel like they're just stuck at the bottom of everything else. They can't escape. But they are going to receive freedom, liberty. Oh, it harkens back to the promises of the year of Jubilee and Leviticus 25, when everybody's debts would be canceled and everybody gets to return to their home land, their property, so they can flourish in their land again. This is all spectacular news for the Jewish people. But what's really interesting about this gospel from Luke is that it is written by a Gentile to a Gentile. Why does he start off his message if we, of Jewish hope when they are Gentiles. Luke is a Roman name. History records that Luke grew up in the city of Antioch and he was a physician by trade. By no means is this guy a Jewish scholar, someone whose whole life was about waiting for the Messiah. And he's writing to another Roman, a man named Theophilus, chapter 1 tells us. Luke addresses him as most excellent It's a phrase used of people of nobility, someone of wealth and higher status. 
This man, Theophilus, has likely been immersed in the prosperous and powerful ways of the Roman life. These are not men who would be inspired by Jewish promises of hope for the poor. But Theophilus can't help but noticing that news of this Jewish Messiah has spread throughout the Roman Empire. It's This movement is filled with people from every walk of life and they all treat each other as equals. They really love each other. They strive together, working together on the same mission, sharing confidence in their future together. Theophilus is quite con- intrigued. He wants to be part of this movement. He needs to know more. So Luke writes in chapter 1 that he's putting together this whole gospel as an orderly account of the things that have been happening so Theophilus can have a full understanding of what is expected of him. And chief among the things Luke wants him to know is that Jesus has not come for the nobility, but for the outsiders, for those kicked to the curb, those set aside and stomped on, or as Jesus quotes from Isaiah, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. This is really the great theme of all of Luke's gospel. More than any other gospel writer, Luke deliberately draws attention to those of society who most thought of as lower class. Women, lepers, widows, demon-possessed people, Gentiles, poor, even those whose own sin Put them in those circumstances like tax collectors and prostitutes. So, for example, in the story of Jesus' birth, a lot of things are similar to what Matthew had said, but he really draws extra attention to the women of the story, Elizabeth and Mary and Anna. Or in his genealogy, Luke doesn't slow down on the significant moments of Jewish history and highlight the heroes of the faith like David and Abraham. He just zooms right past them and gets to Adam, the father of all nations. When he calls his own disciples, he includes Levi, a tax collector, a traitor to the Jewish faith and all the Jewish promises. Jesus heals many outcasts and includes in the outcasts the son of a Roman soldier. He praises a repentant prostitute who anoints Jesus' feet with oil and washes his dirty, disgusting feet with her own hair. He honors a bunch of women, including widows, who use their life savings to fund his ministry. Luke shows Jesus performing all of these miraculous works on behalf of the weakest people in society. And the reason he tells all of these, shows all of these miracles is first to show off what kind of power and authority he has. The primary reason Jesus does miracles is to show that he has all the power and authority as God the creator. But there's a very important secondary reason why he does these miracles for these particular people. It's not simply that he has pity on these hurting people and just wants them to feel better. These miracles are to show the world whom this power and authority works for. It's to show who the citizens of his kingdom are that get to live under this benevolent rule. 
to display what kind of heart is necessary to see and receive this power on your behalf. Simply being poor or being rich doesn't define who you are in Christ's kingdom. But what kind of heart you have, a heart utterly dependent upon God for life. This is all so radical, unlike anything anyone ever expected. They're trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? I think he's the Messiah, but this doesn't fit everything. And so in chapter 9, he takes a couple of his disciples up on a mountain, and he reveals his full glory to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they are in awe. Yes, this is the Messiah, they fully realize But he explains to them that he didn't come simply to take the oppressed and put them on top and make them the oppressors. He didn't come to start a revolution and overthrow the systems and remake society. He came to lead people on a completely new exodus. In chapter 9, verse 39, it says Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure. The word in Greek that's translated departure is literally Exodus. He's going to lead his people on a new exodus, part some great and powerful waters and lead his people out to safety to a new promised land. He is the Messiah, the prophets foretold. He is the king that was promised to David. And he's a new Moses leading his people on a new exodus, gathering people from every kingdom, every nation to join this new kingdom. He calls his 12 disciples as deliberate way of saying, I have a new 12 tribe leadership of my new people. And he's gathering all these people to head out of their bondage into the promised land. The only requirement to be part of this kingdom is that you want out. You're desperate for rescue from this world. You're dead to anything this world has to offer. I just want the new one. I'll take anything else. And from this point on, in Luke's gospel, Jesus becomes a man on a mission. A kingdom mission. A mission that he calls his kingdom citizens to join him on. So now that we're in chapter 9, turn to verse 51. We'll read 51 to 53 to see how focused Jesus is on this mission. Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Setting his face toward Jerusalem is a way of saying he was utterly focused on accomplishing his mission there. He was unwavering, undeterred, undistracted, eyes on Jerusalem. There's nothing more important to Jesus than what is to happen there. Even more important than feeding hungry people and healing sick people was what is to happen in Jerusalem. The entire purpose of his ministry to these suffering people was not simply to feed them, not simply to put give them a better place in society, not simply to heal their illnesses, but to lead them to greater freedom, a greater victory 
in Jerusalem. But that victory will come at a great cost, both to him and his kingdom citizens. Just a few verses later, Luke explains. Now, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus is like, I don't think you quite understand what I'm calling you to. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But that other, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This kingdom citizenship is a serious citizenship. He's warning that following him means you will very likely continue to be poor, afflicted, oppressed, and face difficulty in this life. If you're not in this life, you will become that. But you must remain undeterred. Your family's not going to support you. You can't try to scheme your way to influence or a safety net and an inheritance or maintain some important relationships that will help you survive this journey. You can't say if you're coming to Jesus, well, I hope he doesn't come call me too soon because I, I want to go study abroad. I, I, you know, I would really like to get my dream job first. I'd like to get married and maybe have a couple of kids. And then, and then I'm ready for Jesus' mission. No, you must put your hand to the plow and not look back. If you want to be saved from the coming destruction on this prideful world, you can't have one foot in and one foot out. You must set your face to Jerusalem. Don't turn anywhere else. And so in chapter 10, and he sends out 72 of his followers to go on this mission, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, modeling for all the world what kingdom citizens experience under the rule of King Jesus. And he warns them, many will reject you. I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Sending you to go eat lemons. To have doors slammed in your face. This world will not affirm your kingdom citizenship. They're not going to delight in your mission, but oppose it. Because they don't have eyes to see Christ and his kingdom. And the following stories after this all tell of this growing difficulty and opposition, especially from the religious elite and from the politically powerful. The warnings of riches grow here as temptations to distract you from what you've been called to. Those who cling to their success, their influence, their wealth, their comforts and securities in this world, they've already received their reward. If you're caught up in these things, you've taken your hand from the plow. Turn back, set your face to Jerusalem. Only through what happens in Jerusalem and letting everything else go will you find freedom and victory. So in the final section from chapter 19 on, we see this victory Jesus secures in his kingdom conquest. Look back at the 
text that Jake read for us. For the sake of time, we'll just focus on the last two verses. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Even though Zacchaeus seemed to be one who had schemed his way to get ahead in this world at the expense of others because he was an IRS agent or a tax collector. Jesus offered him an invitation to kingdom citizenship and he gladly let it all go. Everything he was grasping onto, he let it go. He became poor. He paid back four times what he stole from others. He gave away half of his wealth because he saw a greater kingdom offered to him. In this whole scene of Zacchaeus and Jesus, Luke is condensing his entire story, all 18 chapters he said so far, down into Jesus' primary mission, salvation. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus. It seemed like Zacchaeus had sold his Jewish citizenship for personal gain. But Jesus redeemed him for a kingdom citizenship, a new kingdom citizenship. Jesus now is heading to Jerusalem to secure that salvation for all who are like Zacchaeus. All who are like the men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, that he's been telling us about, who are ready to die to the promises of this world and set their faces toward an even newer Jerusalem. In this story, Luke summarizes everything and then launches us into the final week of Jesus' life. Describing the decisive battles of his kingdom conquest. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19. On Palm Sunday to the shouts of all the people. In his triumphal entry, they're so excited. Jesus has arrived to conquer their oppressors. And he walks into the city. And he defies the priests and the scribes and the religious leaders at the temple. He predicts that very soon this whole establishment will be leveled, laying in ruins. Surprisingly, the religious leaders try to make an alliance with the Roman Empire, with Caesar. They invoke Caesar's name to try to put their Messiah down. And he brushes off Caesar's claims over him and presses on his mission. Sure, whatever, pay Caesar's taxes. But Caesar is merely a pawn compared to King Jesus. The Roman Empire is a sandbox, a child's sandbox compared to the glorious kingdom of heaven. He warns that this battle between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this earth will be an epic battle. But Jesus will come out victorious. And then with that, he heads to his death. The whole time, Jesus had been gathering to himself the weak, the vile, the poor to take part in his kingdom conquest. They were expecting a military victory. But instead, he became poor himself. He took the oppression upon his own shoulders. He took the punishment that a prostitute and a tax collector deserve. Nobody expected it. They were shocked. The one who displayed all power... 
All authority is conquered by the Romans on a cross. Or was he? Look closer, as Luke wants us to do, and you see that even on the cross, he's accomplishing his greater victory. Even while he's hanging there, he continues to fight for the poor in spirit, forgiving the Roman soldiers. Luke's the only one to record Jesus talking to the thief on the cross and giving him paradise. He took their sins with him into the grave, buried them there forever. And three days later, burst out of that tomb, finishing his victory, his mission, completing his kingdom conquest. Nothing in this world, not even death, can keep him from saving the lost, proclaiming good news to the poor, setting captives to sin and oppression free to join him in his resurrection kingdom. This is the incredible promise of Christ's upside down kingdom conquest. If people want to impose their ideas of salvation, of victory, of King Jesus onto all of his mission, he's just going to remain a confusing threat or a foolish risk. When you seek prosperity and health and wealth and comfort and peace and security in this life, death is promised to be your end. But when you surrender all of that to Jesus' kingship, epitomized by his death on the cross, then in him you are guaranteed your own resurrection. When we empty ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our own cross, put our hands to the plow, set our face toward Jerusalem, Jesus becomes known right here among his kingdom citizens, and he puts us all together on a path to a new Jerusalem, sharing his kingdom mission. Friends, if, if you haven't put your hands to the plow yet, do so right now. Bow your head and confess your sins to King Jesus. Cry out to him for mercy and trust that on the cross your sins were taken away. And by his resurrection, he pours out his spirit on you to give you victory and help you walk on his kingdom mission. Now, that's definitely not a guarantee that things are going to get easier for you. In fact, it's more of a promise that your life will become much more difficult. But you have been forgiven and empowered to face all of that difficulty with a kingdom citizen mindset. We all need to think through all things with a mindset that we are new kingdom citizens. So what does that look like practically in this crazy world that we all find ourselves in? This week I've had so many conversations with people who just, I don't know what to do with COVID and mandates and my job and family life and all kinds of trials laid before you. So let me finish this morning with two perspectives shaped by this kingdom citizen mindset. First, it just means prioritizing Christ's kingdom priorities in your own home and in the church family. We need to build up our own families with Christ, with this Jerusalem focus. Be a spectacular husband or wife, always focused on leading your spouse 
to keep their eyes on Jesus. Take more of a role in discipling your own kids, pointing them in everything, even in math and English and history and social studies and whatever you do, focusing them on Christ. Pour your life into your church family, using your gifts, your talents, your skills, your passions to add value and meaning and purpose to the church family. Don't get distracted by all the chaos of the news cycle, the mandates of the government, the demands of your employer. Some of these things have great importance. And we can have those conversations about what it means to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But in all of that, don't lose sight of the greater kingdom. We're not trying to overthrow and reform this world, but usher people into a new one. We're not primarily about helping people live longer in this life, but helping them live forever in the next one. We do all of this kingdom work by simply being ordinary, faithful kingdom citizens and trusting the king to do the battles on our behalf. In the story, the hobbit, Gandalf the wizard, tells his little companions, I have found that it is the small everyday deed of ordinary folks that keep the darkness at bay. Let us be those ordinary faithful folks who push back against the darkness in our small kingdom commitments. Second, Instead of seeing ourselves as helpless victims, we need to change our perspective and set our eyes on the guaranteed victory in Jerusalem. See this dark moment in history in our lives as an opportunity to bring light into the darkness, to bring life into the wasteland. Maybe losing your job is an opportunity to go a new direction. Lots of people might be losing their jobs soon, but perhaps God is calling you to change your career, get a new education, get trained for something you've always wanted to do, but you've been too busy with work to do it. Or maybe he wants us to be starting new businesses. Lots of people are losing their jobs, wondering who else is going to provide for them. Let's change that around. Let's take dominion over this world. Instead of waiting for someone to give us a job, let's go create the jobs to serve others and show the world what kingdom citizens create for others. Maybe we could band together to start restaurants and schools and counseling centers and clinics and construction companies, cleaning services, buy rental properties so the world can see what and experience what The kingdom citizens create. Or maybe God is calling you to become a missionary. To give it all up. You know the first Christians in Jerusalem. Didn't obey Jesus command to go to the ends of the earth. Until difficulty came into the city and drove them out. Perhaps this is God calling you. To release you from your current job and send you to the other side of the world to make Christ known through your work in a place where Christ is not proclaimed. Brothers and sisters, we in Christ are no, no longer need to live with a victim mentality or a scarcity mindset. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We have a father who owns cattle on a thousand hills. We don't. We need a victory mentality and an abundance mindset. 
We don't need to be dependent upon the world to provide for us or to give us justice because we have it already in Christ. What looks like disaster in our lives is actually an opportunity to be freed from that mindset and pursue holy ambitions that reflect new kingdom citizenship. We've already been rescued. We just need to strengthen ourselves. Strengthen one another in Christ. Not to avoid suffering, but to face it. To go through it. And to bring others out of it into a new kingdom where suffering will be no more. Brothers and sisters, you are not powerless or purposeless. Let's not act like victims, but boldly press on as new kingdom citizens. Jesus seeks the humble and makes them new kingdom citizens. Our greatest priority in this life is not simply to have good families and pass on good morals to the next generation. To build businesses and serve a community or help people live longer, healthier lives. Whether you're rich or poor, a man or a woman, young or old, you work at Mayo or you don't. Our priority as Christians is to live together as kingdom citizens. To work together on a kingdom mission. And proclaim our confidence together as king in a kingdom conquest. The victory guaranteed us by the Jewish Messiah, the King, the Savior of all the world, of all who are lost. Our King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to experience that. That power, that might, that... That leaven that spreads through the whole lump seems so weak and foolish to a watching world. But as the generation grows, it spreads and gains influence. Not because we, we gained higher positions of power, but because in our ordinary lives, we loved one another. We raised our kids to love Jesus. We served one another and we refused to quit gathering to proclaim the rule and the death and the resurrection and the mission of King Jesus. Call us all, God, to be faithful. Strengthen us for this task. If there are any any opportunities that you want us to start something new that we never imagined, help us bind together and make it happen for the glory of King Jesus that this world may finally see. This city may know what it looks like to live under the rule of our crucified and risen King. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that we lay all this before you. Amen.